and welcome to Bad End Podcast. This is episode number 116. I am Josh Calixto, not joined today by co-host Kyle Cookstell. That does not mean that I'm recording this episode by myself. I am totally incapable of that. We have a special guest today, actually, and that special guest is JJ Bursch. JJ, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Because I feel like the resume is so long at this point, <laughs> um, or at least there's like so many different aspects to it that I don't want to like mess any of them up. No, I'm dropping things from my resume. I'm streamlining it. As you should. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing too much. Um, I'm the researcher at Film Podcast Blank Check with Griffin and David. That's my main job now. That's really my only job now. I have been a PhD student in film at the University of Wisconsin for the last eight years, which is too many years, but I'm almost done with that. So, and I mean, maybe I'm jinxing myself and I'm not, and I'll fail my defense in like two weeks, but uh, yeah, mostly just the researcher at Blank Check. So you you recently finished... Again, I might be jinxing myself. Um I, I finished writing my dissertation, yes. I still have to defend it in two weeks and two days. So I have to sit down and talk about it for two and a half or three hours, and then they tell me if I have to write more if I'm done. What is it? What's it about? Uh, it is called Pack Your Products Bags. Uh, they're going to Hollywood, um, explaining the mainstream emergence of product placement or cinematic product placement in the 1980s. So broadly speaking... Um, it's about why product placement became such a dominant feature in American cinema in the 1980s. Especially, I was curious, I, I was inspired by a trip to the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research, which mm. houses the archives of a man named George R. Simkowski, who was um, the former, I think, center or guard for the like 1953 Rose Bowl winning Wisconsin Badgers football team, which is why... He donated his papers to Wisconsin, but he ran a product placement marketing firm in Chicago um, called Primetime Marketing and then Let's Go Hollywood, starting in 1976 and then stretching until the 2000s. Um, but I stumbled upon those papers like, I guess, six years ago now, read up on product placement and realized that the kind of standard history um, was missing quite a bit. So I had this big stack of papers, the biggest one that I could find uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. from my searches, and that's it. I feel like product placement is such a – it's just such a part of everyday life now that yeah. we are barely even ironic about it anymore. It's it's not even something we joke about. It's just such like a normal thing. But I'm curious as to whether there's like any big points that you can share here. Yeah. I mean the main work my dissertation does is it tries to – joined together a bunch of different strands, um, which I call generative mechanisms. It's a term the scholar Richard Newpert uses in his history of the um, French New Wave, um, except I'm doing it about like a tic-tac you see on screen instead of the films of Jean-Luc right. Godard. But basically um, what I'm, I'm looking at, the, the, the history of product placement up until the 80s and 90s um, from the perspective of industry. So thinking about like like the big intervention I have, I think, is that the the reason product placement becomes so much more obvious, most like the most important reason it becomes so much more obvious is that there is this formation of an industry that is exclusively devoted to product placement. So like 
The first cinematic product placement was in 1896. A French soap company teamed up with the Lumiere brothers in a deal that allowed them to expand their kind of fledgling cinema uh, operation. But up until really the 1970s, um, product placement was mostly, in movies at least, was mostly kind of handshake agreements between someone in like the prop design department or production design department and then someone who worked at some major company. Uh, and basically, a lot of the people who helped arrange those deals um, in the 60s and 70s started to form their own companies where they would keep these like huge warehouses of branded props and other things. And they would have huge client lists of like not only people who make props, but also hotels and other things like that, that they could then quickly arrange a bunch of deals for a movie. So instead of I need to talk to Coke to get Coke in my movie or I need to talk to Sheridan Hotels to have a Sheridan Hotel in my movie, it was I talked to George and George is like, awesome. Uh, here is everything I could do for you. Do you want it? Um, so the the archive collection I was talking about is mainly comprised of all of the like marked up film scripts where this guy would just go through the film scripts and take any chance he could to like put any of his clients in the movie. He would write it down and then arrange those deals. So, but my pro, uh, my dissertation also looks at like the legal history of product placement in the U.S. A little bit at the legal history in other mediums like television and radio. Uh, and some in other countries and like discourses about product placement, the actual aesthetics of product placement, which sounds ridiculous, but I think is my most fun chapter. But yeah, the big change is, yeah, huge warehouses full of props that they could quickly loan out to to film companies if they wanted them. I had no clue about any of that. Yeah, um, it's nuts. But I, I mean, so like, it looks like you've been looking at product placements through all vectors pretty much. And I know what you're talking about in your dissertation is probably specific to film, but when you see it in games, like, do you see any significant differences between how it's presented in games versus how it's presented in film? Yeah. I mean, one huge difference is like that warehouse kind of idea is not possible in a video game. You obviously have to generate some kind of, you know, polygonal product placement. Um, so, the, the other big change that happens is when those companies are able to do all of that kind of super efficient streamlined product placement, the big product placement deals start to become more attractive. So the kinds of deals where James Bond is drinking Heineken now or whatever else uh, is happening, where it's it's not just kind of we do each other a favor, you help expose my movie, maybe we do a tie-up advertising campaign, um, you get a free prop. But instead, it's like, I will pay you a ton of money to have this in the movie. That's how I assume. I mean, I haven't done the primary document research, but given that you actually have to generate the Beats headphones on your NBA 2K player or whatever, I would assume most of those deals are the kind of big money deals where there is that payment going into it. Um, but yeah, there's all, I mean, game product placement um, is so interesting because there are like fandoms. I mean, Death Stranding fans were upset when the director's cut took away the monster energy drinks and they're now just a generic energy drink, right? Um, or I yeah. know I get some ironic enjoyment out of the aforementioned NBA 2K series where it is 
as bad as product placement is in any medium where you are literally just like, this is my time as a player. I get to go to the Beats party and then press a button that makes me raise my fist in the air in celebration of these Beats headphones that I'm wearing now. The guy from the uh, State Farm commercial, uh, (laughs) Jake from State State Farm Farm apparently makes a, what like, but that's what's wild about it too is that you're such, I feel like you're you're much more of a captive audience in games. Mm -hmm. And also you have those dope uh, product placement games. It's not even product placement games. They were just like brand tie-in games. Like Cool Spot was like that Mm 7-Up game. You had that Chex Mix game that everybody like remembers. Totally. But maybe never, even if they never played it. Dude, I remember going to like different Burger Kings to get each of the three Xbox 360 Burger King games. Like... I know one of them was Sneak King, which was like, yeah, yeah. the Hitman one. (laughs) Uh, But there was like a go-kart one and like a Fusion Frenzy knockoff, I think, too. Right. I feel like that's evolved to now you have like the Fortnite collabs where it's like Ariana Grande having a commercial or a concert in the game. Yeah, just different brands putting their ads in the game. And a, a lot of those brands are the movie companies who are arranging product placements elsewhere, like... The advertisements are for Star Wars and whoever else is popping up. I wonder if it's just become like any other form of advertising now or whether it is like slightly more nefarious because it's undermining our art or what have you. What are what are your thoughts on that? I know know this is more in the realm of opinion now, but yeah, I mean, do you have any feelings on it either way? It depends. (laughs) I mean. Obviously, what's so interesting to finding out a lot of like the bigger early kind of movies that arrange these super huge deals like Minority Report, Steven Spielberg's 2002 film. I think that's when it came out. That film, I I can't remember the exact number. It was somewhere between like 25 and 50 million dollars were generated by the use of product placements. But of course, if you watch that movie, most of those ads arrive in this super kind of anti-consumerist, like how scary is this surveillance state that while you are walking down a street knows exactly kind of what ad, like what advertisement would be most effective on you. Um, So there is this weird balance kind of between like, it is this huge, like revenue generating stream, but so many people who generate the revenue with that then do such interesting, I wouldn't say fully anti-consumerist things with it, but I mean, something like 30 Rock 2 is another example of a show that is very straightforward about the fact that it is incorporating those ads. So baseline answer though, yeah, it's kind of ruining art and uh, it would be better if uh, you could use products without the brands. Although I do mention this in my dissertation. It was something my advisor, who is definitely not listening to this, but pushed for me to mention. If you take a movie like Repo Man, which very conspicuously does not use kind of real real world brands and instead uses the kind of generic branding or like its own manufactured generic branding where the can of food just says food. Um, There is something like, so alien to our real world in that kind of presentation of that generic branding that is not something we're used to in real life. And there is, I think, it's kind of like a 
kind of like a bullshit argument uh, a lot of people who work in product placement use, which is that it creates this sense of verisimilitude to have a can of Coke instead of a can of soda. But there is a level of like not bullshit to that, right? Like there is a level of when I see Coke, that's what I see in real life. I'm not thinking too much about the Coke. But when I see this weird can of soda that I've never seen before, maybe I'm looking at that now instead of looking at the actor who's delivering their lines while holding that can of Coke. So it's all over the place. But I think in general, I mean, so much of it is unnoticeable in films. In video games, it usually feels a bit more obvious to me because there's usually a button prompt telling me to interact with that can in some way or something like that. Although... I do think that in video games, when we do see it, it's the game is either like a game that you expect to see product placement in to begin with, or it's something like Death Stranding where you're seeing it in a capacity that it's just like, it's just absurd to the point where you have to kind of appreciate it on some level. My apologies for talking about this show on this show, on this podcast for like multiple times in the past few episodes, but have you seen um, The Orbital Children? By any chance, it's an anime uh, it's a sci-fi anime show slash miniseries slash it was a movie, I believe, in Japan, but it's they it got broken down into like a miniseries for Netflix here. Um, but the way they do product placement is really interesting in that show in that they do the typical like anime thing where they use fake uh, versions of brands. So like Google would be like Dougal or something <laughs> like that. But this show is about all about how these very specific social media and Silicon Valley brands will affect the future and the course mm. of the future. But it's using these like weird, bizarro analogs for these brands. Hmm. And I, to an extent, I, I did feel almost like I had to do this weird middleman step of needing to translate, oh, okay, this is Google, this is Meta or Facebook, and what they're going to be doing in the future. Um, didn't 2001 A Space Odyssey have product? Did they have? I could have sworn there was so. like some... We're literally about to do 2001 on blank check in like three weeks. So oh, okay. <laughs> I might reach back yeah. out to I do know for a fact that, because I found this in the archives, Paths of Glory uh, Kubrick's mm. great anti-war film um, had multiple product placements. Uh, a beer company had reached out to the production and asked, can we advertise in your film? And they said, yes, but we're looking for a better beer for Kirk Douglas. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's also like, it's also so weird that it's like, can we advertise in your anti, like who would typically want to be involved in art like that, like so proactively. You know? I know. I mean, and like that was a, a movie that had real trouble finding financing until Douglas came aboard because it's obviously like, I mean, it was banned in multiple European countries for its take on the French military in World War One. But Kirk Douglas is in it like that kind of allure of like, what if my like the star of a <laughs> film holds my beer bottle? It means so much to the, these companies. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, Blank Check before we move on to more video video games, specifically what we've been playing. What's what's that been like? Because I know like they'll mention you on the show, like where, you know, like JJ found these. You're like a character, a recurring character on the show. But what like what is the actual process or do, are they giving you like homework and then you just do the work or what does that look like? No, it's been it's been really awesome because it is like 
Maybe I just stumbled onto the correct format early and they didn't feel like they needed a course correct, but it was the kind of thing where um, this job opportunity came up um, and they were like, hey, let's just see what you can do. Send us over a research packet. And after like a couple episodes, it kind of instantly was codified that this is what the research dossier, we call them, which is so ridiculous, but um, mm. This is what it will look like. So, um, no, that job is literally just I make sure I prepare increasingly longer Google Docs of any kind of <laughs> like – I basically I try to tell the product the story of the production of the film. So usually the way the dossier works – God, I haven't said it out loud myself too much. It's something I've only really said in text or a tweet or on the blank check discord. It sounds so ridiculous to say dossier about the work I'm doing, but um, I walk them through the kind of pre-production genesis of the film. We're a show where um, we don't just talk about one film from a director, but we talk about every film that director has made in chronological order. So that pre-production kind of section usually is breaking down what's going on with our director. Uh, right now we're doing Bob Fosse. What was going on with him was some of the most debauched stuff that ever happened in Hollywood or Broadway. Um, and then I walk them through the kind of production of the film, um, the kind of post-production process too. What was it like when they actually went in the editing room? What was the release and reception like? Um, my main concern is making sure um, – because the show has gotten bigger, they don't get yelled at for getting stuff wrong. So I want to make sure I clear up any things that seem like maybe they're more myth than actuality. Um, I try to take the kind of common stories and cross-check them. Um, but yeah, then I'm just digging up any other weird things I can find and slotting them in wherever I can go. It's wild the extent to which that is like such a thing that these people need to worry about now. When you have a medium like film, I mean, every medium has its know-it-alls, but the extent to which you're just being absolutely put under the microscope for every single thing that you say, especially as like a critic and a comedian, it's like, like there's so many people who are listening to this stuff who are just probably huge Bob Fosse feet people or whoever the director is that you're deep diving into it. It's like, you say one thing wrong I know. and Dear it's God, just, we're doing Kubrick. They're never hear the end of it. <laughs> we're doing Kubrick next. Oh, it's so God. scary. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Have you gotten any, uh, of the blowback from that? No, thankfully. No. Again, this is maybe like I'm setting up for me to fail my dissertation defense to get a bunch of blowback <laughs> on an upcoming episode, but no, I haven't yet. Um, the coolest thing is I've I've usually only had people reach out and say, hey, I know this obscure thing. You might be interested in it. Um, and sometimes it's something really cool that I wish we had in the episode. Other times it's stuff that I'm like, this could never be in the episode, but I'm happy you have told me this very strange bit of gossip about the production of a 2002 superhero film. Um, but um, no, I haven't yet. The Kubrick series... I'm interested in because there's just a lot. It, this has been the series where I most have to kind of cross-check everything that is is going on because there are wildly different versions of not only like the productions of these films, but literally different versions of who 
Kubrick, this enigmatic, reclusive director, was. And yeah, we're actually, <laughs> speaking of blowback, right now I'm researching The Shining, and then I will, because we're recording out of order, we'll be researching Lolita immediately after that. So um, those are the two where I'm like not necessarily enjoying cross-referencing all this stuff, but the kind of thing where, again, I think it helps them, David and Griffin, the hosts, um, just to have someone really wade through all of that murky kind of awfulness for them. I wonder um, if we could pitch a version of that for video games, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, play I mean... Play through every Kojima game? You play through every, you know, kitty horror show game? Every... I totally... Really? I mean, I've thought about it. I mean, they're... <laughs> I mean, the the problem is, yeah, Kojima is such, like, a totemic kind of outsized auteur that it feels like you would have to start with him. But there are so many people who... I, and just smaller companies, too, right? If you do that, bring me back. I'm ready to prepare a dossier. <laughs> oh, this is... That's why you're on the show, man. I just, this is just all one big attempt to get you in the bag for this. But the thing about video games, though, is that... And I don't know if this is something that you guys encounter at Blank Check. There's always the conversation about, like, it's never just one person behind the art, man. It's always mm -hmm. a, a lot of people. And, I mean, obviously it's true for film. Obviously it's true for video games. But, you know, there's an extent to which, like, you have to acknowledge the idea of a creative vision and at least at least understand that there's some connection there between the uh, the person who has the vision or who is in charge of bringing that to life and the people who make it happen at a broader scale. Mm -hmm. But with video games, it's it's a similar conversation that you would have when you're talking about like Guaron directing a Harry Potter movie or something, something where you have just like so many different stakeholders involved in the process and you really have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like with video games, a lot of the time, like you always have that. You always have the big studio looming over you and like making sure that you are making a specific creative vision come to life that jives with what all the stakeholders and shareholders want. But yeah, I, I, I wonder if that's a harder conversation to have with video games because of that. Is that something that you've encountered in Blank Check when you're talking about directors who have these like big budget films on their dockets as well? Totally. I mean, one of the things that I think, not to bring up like a very cursed film Twitter discourse and talk about auteur theory, but one of the, the, the big impulses of auteur theory was taking those big studios because the classical Hollywood studio system was so dominant and was led by these very powerful producers and executives. And it was a machine where even the best directors are often making multiple films in a year uh, and rushing from one film to the next. It was really about finding the human inside of that machine. So instead of saying Howard Hawks, who, if you've seen a Howard Hawks film, his movies have a lot of similarities, but I don't think you could argue that he is the only creative impulse driving those films. But what is it about Hawks that makes this movie a Hawks movie? Or what is it about William Wyler that makes a William Wyler film a William Wyler film? And I think for us at Blank Check, I think we're curious in a lot of these people and the stories about them themselves. But at least personally speaking, for me, when I'm preparing my research, the director is a useful category. It gives you someone to kind of fall back on as the kind of primary creative impulse. But it also allows you to spend extended time with the people who are further below the line. So one of the great things about 
thinking about Stanley Kubrick is thinking about those collaborators who he continued to work with over and over and over again and getting to learn the names of the production designers and the editors and all those other people um, who are sharing stories about him, but of course sharing stories about their own work. And I think maybe that kind of hard focus on the creatives who are behind these video games um, is maybe, I mean, maybe you'll find like those kind of specific one-to-one scenarios where this person was the kind of person who pulled the trigger on this. Of course, the problem is like finding primary documentation or actually having to go out there and interviewing all these other people because um, at least from my cursory knowledge, the video game industry isn't quite as transparent about those people behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, to an extent, like I, I feel like this is just something in general, the conversation about around video games is just kind of behind, but I mean, film theory has been around for quite a bit longer. Yeah. So I think the way that the medium is currently observed is a lot different from how it is in video games. But I think that's like one thing where the way that we look at video games has uh, so much room for improvement too, is just like the idea of looking at people who are not like directing games, Mm -hmm. people who like, you know, you have conversations about Roger Deakins all the time, you know, when you're talking about film. Totally. And you have a magazine like American cinematographer that is specifically about this one kind of person inside of that larger machine. Yeah. And, and those are like a large part of the conversation around film too. And I guess with games you have like composers and stuff would be like some of the closest you get to that type of conversation. But when it comes to like art direction, when it comes to those conversations about the more technical sound design, those aspects of game production that are just as important. And in the future, I'm sure we will have those names where we're like, oh, this person did the sound design for this game and this game and this game. There's just so much more space there for that conversation to become so much more robust. What we need, I mean, a a huge, and this is maybe, so Jeff Keeley, if you are listening right now, um, (laughs) a huge part of the uh, Ampus, the American, God, I'm going to mess it up. So I'm just going to call it Ampus. The people who do the Oscars, the Academy, a huge part of um, their show, of course, was bringing those kind, not, not just the laborers, but specifically the labor of those people to a more general audience. I mean, I know growing up, what I loved so much about the Oscars was seeing like, oh, this is a picture of someone on a movie set using a camera and moving it this way and arranging the lights this way to have that that kind of image as the final result. And obviously, I think maybe behind the scenes of video game development is a little less sexy to look at than someone moving a camera through a war scene. Um, But I think having kind of more open kind of discussion of just like literally what is that work? I mean, I I found so interesting in um, Jason Schreier's recent book, Press Reset, that chapter on the Kurt Schilling company that did Kingdoms of Amular. Is that the name of the game? Um, Amular. Yeah. um, Never played it. Sorry, Kurt. Um, But there was that discussion about literally like the combat team, that there is this group of people who is specifically focused 
on the combat and they are working divorced from so many other people who are involved in the game and just that kind of kernel of an idea of, oh, this is, and obviously it varies from game to game, but that idea of a unit and really unpacking what their specific work is and what specific choices they have to make. um, I think there's a huge market for that now. Like there, I mean, that's one of the encouraging things about working for Blank Check is like there are people who want to learn about the making of these movies. It isn't something that people are no longer curious in. Um, And video games, I think, are reaching a stage where that's totally true. Like I know people who don't play that many video games who have read a bunch about the making of video games. So yeah, it's just doing that work involves at this point talking to a lot of different people who are or are not under NDAs and whatever else. And and that's, I think, the, the tough part of it now. But hopefully in the future, we see a little bit more of a breaking down of those walls, even if it requires, you know, media training and highly vetted and groomed uh, spokespersons for the, which is honestly the way that I kind of like see this going in the future for games, unfortunately. Keely, baby. Yeah, yeah, we're going to see a lot more people in uh, in blazers and t-shirts and jeans in the future. And the other thing is, like, you were talking about how, you know, make sound design is not as, like, glamorous as being a guy behind the camera or whatever. But it's, like, so many other people who are behind the film creation mm-hmm. process are, like, also not glamorous. And we would have never really thought of that totally. them that way. Yeah, it's stuck in a ago. closet working with this highly flammable kind of material, cutting it to no end, cigarette smoke everywhere, the dirtiest place you could be. So let's uh let's talk about video games now, shall we? Um, yeah. Have you did you get a chance to play the cat game at all? I'm halfway through the cat game. You're halfway. <laughs> yeah, I played. How many? How how many hours? How long is this game? First first of all, we're talking about the new cat themed post apocalyptic uh, sci-fi game Stray uh, Annapurna published, I believe. Yep. Um, your cat walking around yeah um (laughs) Um, it's short at least from what i read it it was it's like i actually wanted to know how far i was so i went to a walkthrough miraculously there was a walkthrough already on push square so i've seen i'm i'm actually a little more than halfway through on the chapters but i believe it's only like a five hour game um six or so hours if you want to collect everything um but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, from the perspective of like, like, well, really from the perspective of perspective, like the way they center you as this cat and the kind of places you can access and the way you move and the different activities you can do, like a quick time event, pulling the right trigger and the left trigger to scratch a post <laughs> or yes. to knead the rug and stuff like that um, is a lot of fun. I'm less convinced, I will say, about other aspects of it. I don't know. Do you know the working title of this game? No. It was HK, short for Hong Kong, although this is a French studio who is making this. And the post-apocalyptic kind of idea is a classic one, especially from kind of narratives that draw from Eastern design, but it is that the lower parts of this city that is very clearly taking parts of kind of Hong Kong architecture are really poor. And the higher up you go, the more natural and richer they kind of get. Uh, And Mm. down below here on this level, there are these robots uh, and then these like 
I don't even know what to describe them. I was actually surprised by how much like horror elements there are because there are these just like nasty bugs that eat anything in sight. Uh, and the only time the game really demands any skill from you is running away from those bugs. But otherwise, it's like a, a platformer in the vein of like an early Assassin's Creed where you hold X to jump and you don't actually have to perform jumps yourself and you point at ledges to to jump and then you press square to talk to someone. You solve some puzzles, but you're a cat. I'm about, I want to say I'm like about two hours in. So you're about halfway. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like an hour and a half or two hours. I'm still in like the lower section, but first off, it has this indie aesthetic that we talk about on this show quite Mm -hmm. a bit that I'm starting to notice is kind of, if you think about the A24 like house style, there's this like Annapurna games sort of house style happening. There's uh, there's just quite a few games like this. When I think about the world design, a lot of it reminds me of like a Last of Us type mm-hmm. thing. Um, there's also a bit of like a Little Nightmares slash Inside vibe that I get from this too, where it's these kind of grave, intense situations that you're surrounded by, but you're just this like kind of carefree character in the middle of it all a cute cat that's just like scratching posts it has a sense of humor kind of like a cutesy uh you can pet the cat you can pet each other you can snuggle up you can purr and all these things that are kind of tailored directly to the video game journalist quotient of the audience Mm -hmm. and i appreciate that and i I think the granted i don't think the game is like going outside of what it should be in order to like check those boxes But at the same time, it feels like I've been here before and done this kind of thing before to an extent, even though the design of the world is gorgeous and the the way the fact that you are playing a cat in this like novel experience, I, I, I almost feel like the indie aesthetic and the familiarity of it almost like kind of takes away from that in some way. Totally. I mean, I I think I was digging the game the most in the early stages before you eventually, I don't think it's a spoiler because it's like very early in the game. You meet a robot named B12 who helps you navigate this world. Um, and really like the 30 or so minutes before that, where you are just a cat felt like I am enjoying this kind of, maybe it's not doing anything new. Maybe it is so kind of obvious where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do. But interacting with it from this perspective is interesting. I am not a cat very often in games, and I love my cats, and it's cool to be one. Um, And then, yeah, then it just kind of gets back into that kind of classic, now I have this robot who's going to lead me to hijinks with other robots kind of thing. I have an inventory. I'm, like, talking to characters. It becomes, like, it becomes essentially an RPG in some ways. Yeah, and there's some... I would never advocate that more games take the God of War 2018 approach to kind of (laughs) fluid camera work, uh, always staying in a single take. This is a game where I'm – it's so strange that there are cutscenes because the cutscenes are so short. They seem – I don't know why they arrive or what they really add. Um, They're often not even changing perspective very much from where you are as the cat. So it feels like the camera could just move. And it feels it feels so strange when those come in and really takes me out of that. Again, I like being the cat. I would like to continue being the cat. 
That's a really good point. I had that exact thought multiple times, but I don't know if I would have really remembered to, or I don't know if I would have really zoomed in on that as, as something that like I specifically take issue with, but that's like absolutely the case where it, it, it is weird the extent to it. Like, I wonder if it's just some kind of shortcut around yeah. some technical things. I'm sure it was that kind of thing. Maybe they didn't have enough time. I'm sure creating a game like that, like is more difficult Totally. Like at the beginning of the game, when you're separated from your pack, you fall into a pit. We're watching this clip on the stream now. Uh, but it's like you think could just sh any other game would just show you falling into the pit. But when, when you make the jump, it cuts to a cut scene and you're falling into this pit. And it's like, OK, what, what are we doing here? But um, I, I do think the fact that like the game has to get gamey is kind of annoying when it's like the whole pitch is that it's, this isn't. A gamey game yeah and it's it's such like the game elements are so simple too that there is one part i don't know if you've gotten to this there's one part where all the weird little creatures are chasing you and you kind of have to like run to a certain spot and then jump out of that pit and they will be stuck in that pit Literally any other time I've played the game, I it's just I move and I press the button. So I'm not quite sure why it is so gamey when the game itself is not that interesting on its own. Like the things I am doing, it really is just about the perspective. The things I'm doing don't feel very interesting, but who I am as I do them and how I'm seeing those things happen is interesting. So the fact that it it, it does bring the inventory and you will like, photocopy a key into your robot and then or scan a key into your robot and then you will go use that key two seconds later it's not even like i need to remember i have this in my inventory it's all so strange well, this is the other weird friction of this game too is that it's like you are ostensibly just a regular ass cat mm -hmm. right like you have this there's this thing that will happen where when you see like a bucket of paint on a ledge, you feel this like compulsion to push at it. And then the animation is this really cute, like, oh, this is how a cat would actually push the paint over the ledge. When you see a carpet, you feel that compulsion to, again, scratch your feet on it. When you see like a bookshelf, you, you want to rest on it. And these are all affordances that the game gives you. And they're fun to interact with and they're funny because it's like, oh, it's, I'm, I'm a cat. But then you have these interactions where you have someone who's explicitly telling you, like, do this thing. Go, go here. And there's puzzle design where it's like, unplug these five plugs and plug them in elsewhere to turn on the system that allows you to interact with this thing that's like so video gamey at its core. And it's like, Wait, so am I like a sentient like cat with human intelligence who knows how these things work? And it yeah. the problem here is not like that the lore is unclear about what your cat is and whether you do have higher intelligence in some way, shape or form. I couldn't I could kind of care a bit less about that. It's just less interesting to me than a game where you are just a dumbass cat just who just so happens to be watching all of these incredible things unfold before your eyes which is what it seemed like this game would be yeah um i i'm sure you know there would be some way for them to kind of split the difference there where 
you are kind of a dumb cat, but you are able to make specific things happen. I like, I'm sure from a game design perspective, it's probably more difficult for them to be like, Oh, well, we want to give the players something specific to do and have some kind of challenge or task ahead of them. But we can't really do that without building the cat to be some sort of like at least partially intelligent being. Mm-hmm. So th- but there is this constant friction of this game between the cat as just a normal cat and the cat as a highly intelligent creature that is like way more intelligent than any actual actual cat. Yeah, you know? he, this is the most Im- obedient cat there has ever been. Like this is a pigeon <laughs> as a cat or like a dog as a cat. Um, yeah. And I mean, I said it earlier too, like the other thing too, like uh, with it being so gamey is that you get the perspective of the cat, but when you are actually performing the action, so when you're, there's a lot of jumping in this game. Um, and at first I was like, oh, that's interesting thinking in terms of like, I am a cat. I can maybe jump higher than other characters I've played with in video games, but it is just this kind of even more streamlined old school Assassin's Creed thing where it is just you press X to a spot and it jumps you exactly to that spot. And it has the little, like, what was the the, the other snappy, French? Like the snapping animation yeah, type Yeah, and it has like the tiny little cutesy circle that gives you the little X for where you are going to go. And the, the fact that it's so gamey is so strange when it's also like, it clearly is trying to do this kind of prestige aesthetic of like, this is an experience more so than it is a game while also being laden with all of this gamey stuff. Um, especially after playing the last Annapurna game, which is the most gamey game I've played in a very long time, like to have, which is neon white, but to have this, to have this game, just the game part of it is so there's just a, a kind of, there's something lacking about it when there is so much to love. Um, and, and it is truly like a gorgeous kind of dystopic city that you are navigating. The robots have these friendly faces. There's one robot who wears like kind of tropical shirt who seems to have a pretty fun personality. Like there are these elements that seem to, to be interesting, but the stuff I'm doing feels so rote and boring. Yeah. And In some ways, it kind of feels like the uncanny valley of cats Mm -hmm. where you're I have this weird moment where when we we talk about the uncanny valley, it's like it's a human face that doesn't look human. It's just off enough where it feels wrong. And the cat, the cat looks good. I don't think that the uncanny valley thing happens there. It's more just like the stuff that you're doing is so uncat like in a lot of situations just because you're like you're goal driven in this game and a cat is not when i'm like even when you're traversing a building you're like i want to go to the top of this building a cat like would not fucking behave like that you know and then in the situations that are pre-baked where it's like oh you've come to this pillow on the ground press triangle or y and you'll sit in that pillow and then it's like, okay, I'm being like a cat now. Like, this is what a cat would do. And then you get up and you immediately break that wall again. And you're acting like a weird virtual cat that's not even a real cat. I, I think that there's something interesting happening in this game where the friction between the realism that you're expecting is not in like the way that the cat is actually actually looks on the screen, but in the way that it actually interacts and the way that you use the cat, which is just, which is an interesting thing about this game to me like 
and something that I don't, don't usually notice. I don't usually notice that friction in other games because walking around, jumping, these are all relatively normal things for a human to do with the proper motivation. But I don't think that there's any getting a cat to do any of the things that happen in Stray. No, I mean, before recording, it was a real challenge to get one of my cats out of this closet. So, no, there, it's not easy. There's one moment in the game where you can, like, get a bag stuck on your head and then your analog <laughs> yeah. stick doesn't yeah. line up with your movement. And I was like, this is the kind of cat I know. This is this is what my guy Reynolds would get up to. Uh, and then when they fall asleep, yeah, that's really cute. I like those moments where they sleep. There's one robot you can give like sheet music to who will play you songs on his guitar and you sleep next to him. And I'm like, this mm. is the idealized cat. And then all of a sudden I'm taking the perfect path forward and avoiding every spike that exists in my path. Like literally there are so many parts of this world that are just have spikes that prevent you from even being able to jump on them. Yeah, yeah, Where yeah. it's like, dude, a cat is going straight on that. Like immediately yeah. the cat is at least touching that. And yeah, it <laughs> like they're going to play with fire. That's what cats like to do, but no, also, not in this who, game. Are, who are those spikes for dude? Who are those spikes for? <laughs> I mean, a city just from a city design perspective, like if they were like, we want to make sure cats follow the perfect path to go through this narrative, they, they crushed it. But if they were like, yeah, we want to keep the people who are down below out of the top. They kind of set up the perfect path to get out. So, <laughs> uh, I will say there. I mean, granted, you know, we've been talking about these weirdnesses about the game, but there are some like some really cool things obviously happening in this game. It's a gorgeous city. The way that it's rendered is amazing. Uh, some of the creative direction is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think the robot design is like a little bit overplayed at, at this point. Like the yeah. The screen face that shows a happy face or a sad face. Yeah, like depending the on the man. robot emotion. Very simple. Yeah, it's that's I don't know. I've seen that a lot, dude. Let's be real. Um, but the one thing I like about this game is that the way the platforming works is like it feels like you can go to places that you could never go before because there are these random walls that we've become so used to in the language of video games like a, a gate or a fence, for instance, or a balcony. Uh, are, those are typically like walls. Mm-hmm. They might as well be walls. Um, but for a cat, you can just kind of go through the poles. You know, you just kind of go through the grate. You can go through the fan. You can do, you can kind of go wherever the hell you want. It's small spaces are not a big deal for you. And so like the, the fact of traversing the world in this way. Oh, and there's like a lot of, um, air conditioners, you know, attached to buildings. And usually in a video game, like when they have a couple of them close to each other, like you're not able to fit in or like one of them is too small and you can't climb it. But as a cat, you can kind of just like take whatever path through these air conditioners you want to, or anything jutting out of a building is your, your domain. And I kind of, it adds a really neat dimension to city traversal that I think is really cool in this game. Yeah, that moment, the first moment where you are climbing up to a balcony and the kind of bars, you don't have to jump up over the balcony, like the gate. You just walk through the bars. Again, was one of those things yeah. where this perspective I am now put in is so interesting. And there is an early moment too where you're running around and you go under something and the camera follows you and I think that is specifically why I noticed the cutscenes more because that felt so fluid 
And so interesting mm-hmm. to see that experience from that perspective. But then, yeah. Yeah, it is It is cool. I mean, I, I'm i enjoying my time with the game. I feel like I'm being uh, negative about it. But there are just those things that hold it back from being something that, like, I want to tell, I know a lot of people with cats. We send each other cat pictures all the time. I want to tell them all to check this game out. But I know the moment an inventory screen pops up, even though it's the most basic inventory screen of all time, they're going to be like, what is this? I don't know what this is. It's a different game. Yeah, absolutely. I Okay, I just had this thought and I don't want to lose it. Is there something happening here with the idea of short film? Because when I think about short film, I think about it like in two different categories specifically, and I'm sure that there are more subcategories. But I think of the the animated short, okay, which is typically like a fucking, if you're thinking about the Oscars or something, it's a fucking Pixar movie that wins that shit. Like every year. Yep. But then there's like the other short film, which is like this extremely like mature kind of like dark art house film that is just live action or whatever. And it almost felt like Stray could go in either of those directions. And and I mean, watching the animated shorts for the past few years, there's always like a few really dark ones, but it, it felt like Stray could kind of go either way. And I was part of me was hoping, I guess, that it would be more of like that kind of dark, be more in that like dark, mature, thematic direction, except it's gone full into the Pixar territory of like what you might expect from that type of short. The the reason why I think about it in those terms, too, is because of this games like pedigree is like an Annapurna thing and, and something that is like at its core kind of associated with those types of names, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it does feel like a Pixar kind of story stuck in this more realistic, darker, more interesting, I think, aesthetic in many ways. Um, Because even like I was surprised at how, immediately you are given the large goal and how immediately after that you are given your sub goals to achieve Mm -hmm. where it is very clearly like this is the hero's journey you will go on and i'm like i was being a cat i was climbing around i was letting my friends lick me (laughs) it was amazing like people don't lick me in video games very often but it's happening right here um yeah there is this kind of like there is the wrong games (laughs) yeah there is this like um there is this like beholdenness to this kind of standard story and even the aesthetic yeah because of the robots and the dialogue and it's kind of quirky and all that kind of stuff as opposed to we are leaning fully into this kind of like i don't want to say more avant-garde experience but there is a version of this game that is more about the experience than it is about following that narrative and meeting those robots and finding out more about those stories. I mean, it's so interesting because I don't know how familiar you are with Annapurna's former, increasingly former film division. Uh, somewhat. I mean, I, I need to like, I need to pull up. A <laughs> I've got it. Don't worry. Cause I think here. about them all the time because you said earlier that Annapurna has become, they, they have attempted at least to become this kind of A24 of games when in many ways A24 was the successor to Annapurna Pictures because Annapurna, oh, yeah, yeah, were these like financing. We find these auteurs who don't necessarily have the money to make these projects at this point. I am 
the daughter of a very rich, powerful man, I can fund the master. I can fund the grandmaster. I can fund movies that don't have master in the title. But <laughs> there is that kind of like the, the big thing that happens with Annapurna, the movie business is they start distributing their own films um, mm. and they are really bad at it. So something like Barry Jenkins's follow up to Moonlight, if Beale Street could talk. One of my favorite movies of the last however many years was totally mishandled when it came to actually delivering that film to audiences and it it failed to take off. And since then, Annapurna has really pulled back from making movies. I know they have, they didn't have any movies last year, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and I believe they have one this year. She said the um, recently released trailer for that came out. Um, but there's like... There's this move where it it almost feels. This is what I felt watching the game, maybe just or playing the game, just as someone who is so interested in this company. It feels like even though they have become, and maybe it's I mean it's true of A twenty four too, I suppose. Even though they have become this very successful art house video game company, there is that that kind of sticking to the formula uh, of what worked before that isn't really pushing like it doesn't feel like it's realizing the full potential of having the studio with all this money and maybe they don't have money i know the film company is struggling with money too but it doesn't quite have like it doesn't fulfill that potential of what if this powerful person ushered their funding towards making something more interesting and more unique and instead it very much does feel like i will share this clip of the cat on twitter and people will come play the cat game and then they will be greeted with a game that ultimately doesn't do too much that challenges them. Um, or even like, have, has your cat died yet? No. Okay, I died once. I will. I keep talking about how easy this game is, and then there was one time I died. It was partially because I had a couple of the blobby <laughs> things on me, and I was like, what happens here? Mm. Uh, and the cat just kind of falls down, and it, a retry button pops up. Um, mm. Not that I wanted to see the cat die. Now I feel like I'm a freak for saying that, but... Um, you yeah yeah I'm sorry I mean no, no. I, I didn't know that <laughs> I, I didn't know that the cat could die it's good to know yeah it I'm can I, it can't fall or anything as far as I know um but it can have the blobs take it over and it just kind of falls over where again it feels like kind of like the fact that a retry button pops up so quickly it just feels so much like a video game sometimes when it seems like it was sold and it's packaged in so many ways as being this very different style of game when I think at its core it's not. If I were to make the music comparison, it feels like pop, like a pop song uh, when you thought it might be something completely different. Yeah, this that. is. No, I can't say her name. I almost said a name I shouldn't have said. I was oh. going to say this is blank working with Aaron Dessner. OK, so no, I will not say her <laughs> name. OK. <laughs> Um, I don't know what kind of technology they have, what they can do to the Bad End podcast. Find out I said her name on a podcast. No way. They have that voice recognition shit for sure. Yeah, I mean, Annapurna is such an interesting case because you have these pitches in video games where it's like the quality and direction of a game can be so wildly different depending on like who's behind it. And so you have these games that like seem like they should have pretty similar directions or ideas, but just end up going in completely different ways. And because of that, I feel like you do get quite a bit of um, just the qualities all over the board uh, when it comes to Annapurna. But that's why that's what makes you think, hey, Stray can be anything. It can be this. It can be that. 
And it ended up being like on the Pixar side of things. Well, especially but, coming off of Neon White, which the pitch of that oh, yeah. did not fully interest me. It was like cards. Oh, my God. Complicated. Don't care. Don't need to do yeah. that. Combining too many things. And then you play it and it is just this like perfect video game where it's such a satisfying loop. And here, the fact that there are so many of those game elements, but they're not as interesting um, as they are, and they're kind of taking away from the thing that's most interesting about the game. Yeah. Right. Mm, I'm looking at this list, and I'm seeing 12 minutes on here. Mm -hmm. Annapurna. Mm -hmm. <sighs> we don't talk about that game anymore. Um, I had some other stuff that I want to talk about when it comes to video games, but I don't, did you, do you watch speed run stuff at all? Are you familiar with this universe? I am only adjacently familiar. I hear people talking about them when I listen to podcasts, but I have not watched too many myself. So there's this interesting thing that the, the annual, I guess it's biannual happens at awesome games done quick AGDQ. And then summer games done quick during the summer, which is the one that was recently held. And they do this thing called a Taz showcase tool assisted speed run where they get a program or tool or a piece of hardware that allows them to manipulate um, and or control the game as if it's like a different, it's a, it's a controller that can put in these very precise inputs. Hmm. So it's like a computer that can like press buttons really fast, essentially. And they usually get it to like beat these extremely hard levels of Mario in, in a way that a human could never do. But they did it with Zelda. And what they did was they presented it as if they were uncovering these secrets within Ocarina of Time that people had not known about before. Have you have you seen this? Have you heard mm -hmm. of this? No, that sounds cool. But no, I've not seen this. They have it where they, you know, there's these urban legends that you hear here as a kid like mm -hmm. oh can you bring up an r-wing from uh star fox in in zelda and fight it uh it, it was like an urban legend that there was actually credence to that like you could actually get a game shark and get this r-wing to appear in your zelda game because it's like on this cartridge so they present it as we have this beta disc that has all this like content on it that nobody's ever known about but we have this tool that allows us to input code and input things into the game that allows us to like bring these things up and dig them up. So the whole showcase is them pulling up this real, all these like just really interesting things that you never thought that you would see from Zelda. A lot of them, you maybe heard about it as, as a kid because there's this culture surrounding Ocarina of Time and playground rumors about what's there and what's not and how this works and how there are the, these vestigial features that were left in and how the game was intended to be so much bigger, but they left these kind of breadcrumbs showing us what it could have been. Uh, and then there's like the more urban legend stuff where it's like, oh, if you beat this, uh, this guy that you're supposed to beat in a foot race, you have to break the game to do it. But if you do, they actually created, uh, unique text that he says after this race and you have to fight him as a boss uh, as some like Easter egg in case you did break the game in such a way that it, this can happen. So they're showing all of these things in this showcase and it's just, it's mind boggling. Like any person who was a kid and interested in Ocarina of Time, this is like what you thought as a kid was there. Mm -hmm. It's like essentially coming true before your eyes. And so it's really compelling. But then at the end of the game, 
And this is, they just start becoming more and more difficult to believe where you're Mm -hmm. like, there's no fucking way this was in the game. Like I would have known about this if this was in the game. So they do this thing where they like, Zora's domain has like this frozen ground. And apparently if you have this special item that wasn't included in the game, you can actually melt the ground and it takes you to this special like realm of the sages where you can actually interact with the sages. And you're seeing, you see this clip here of like the actual Triforce and it all comes up to the finale, which is they, they head out of this realm of the sages and they end up in a scene that looks like Breath of the Wild. The <laughs> characters are all animated uh, and the art style looks like Breath of the Wild. You see Link and Zelda there and it's really weird because you're like, okay, well, they obviously made this themselves. Apparently, they they say that the tool allowed them to like input code into the game that allowed them to basically build new scenes from the ground up, which is what allowed them to do this. But they weren't really clear about that at the beginning. They're like, they, and in fact, they kept on saying like, for the record, this is a real ocarina of time thing. We're not doing any, we're not changing it. All we're doing is like pressing a button, bunch of buttons really fast. And I think all of that is true. So all of this is amazing that they were essentially able to put new scenes into this game that verified these urban legends that we had around as kids. Um, but people got upset, like they were essentially lying to us. The way that this was presented was like totally off. And it became this big kind of controversy and conversation. A lot of people weren't fans. But I kind of think about this in the same vein as I think of like the first wave of, first waves, I should say, of found footage horror, where they're saying like, this is, this was found by like the San Diego Police Department. And this is this footage is all real, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Or even something like a cannibal holocaust or something like that, where it's like, this is all real shit, dude. It it makes the work hit harder, I think. I think it's more fun. Yeah. But I it's easy to feel like you've been duped at the end of it when they weren't being a hundred percent forthcoming about the circumstances of this thing's creation. Yeah. It feels like the, the most extreme, my uncle works at Nintendo story of all time. Yeah. And that like, that's essentially what this is, what this is. But I thought that it was just really cool that they did this because if they did present this as something where it's like, Oh yeah, we can like, change the code and put in imaginary shit to like make you think these urban legends were true. I wouldn't be hearing about it right now. It wouldn't be fun. Yeah. It wouldn't have been any fun at all. And the re like this hit hard because it felt like all these things were coming true. And what's funny about it too, is that it kind of inadvertently puts those myths to rest because they, they, they have this cartridge, like they know everything that's on here. And it's like, no, that stuff was never real to begin with. But it was like cool to see if it was real, what would that look like? You know? Yeah. And I mean, it's a more interesting thing to think about too, right? I mean, the, the mode of presentation is what, like, it still gives you, it gives you that takeaway in such a interesting way that in many ways makes it hit harder. Exactly. And it, it's just, it's something that I, I feel like the fact that we got to see it and that we got to have it be a thing that was presented to us in this format as like 
a speed presented as a speed run showcase at summer games done quick is just it's really cool that this thing existed and i i feel like people are kind of missing the forest for the trees and being upset granted like the other thing too is that they actually put out afterwards like an entire rundown of what was real what wasn't how they executed this stuff what tools they used all the technical details blah, blah 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 so i mean really no harm no foul but it is video games. It is the internet. You know. Yeah. You know people how people being upset are. about something. I don't know about that. <laughs> no way. Yeah, but it, it it is just a very cool thing that happened, and I guess I wanted to weigh in on that a little bit. But um, did you did you play anything else that you want to talk about? I I want to start. We do have to, we have some questions from our listeners that I want to get to. But um, if there's any other games you want to talk about. I have a question. Have you have you played Kirby in the Forgotten Land? I have not. Okay, because I'm on the final boss. It was the last thing I was doing right before this. Um, I was like, what should I do before the podcast starts? My daughter started watching Clifford, and I was like, awesome. I'm going to finish Kirby. And then I died embarrassingly. That game is insane. (laughs) It is. There are no cutscenes really, like beyond the beginning. And then there is this gigantic lore dump at the very end. That becomes stranger and stranger and stranger uh, in a way that I fully like did not expect. Like it is worth looking into the ending. I mean, the game is fun. It's a great Kirby game. It's a Kirby game. But the ending is (laughs) it's so nuts. I don't even. Dude, I remember watching the trailers and being like, is this a fucking post-apocalyptic Kirby game? Like, what is going on here? Because that's what the vibe was from the trailer. It was all these, like, rundown areas. It looked like mm-hmm. the, the Last of Us Kirby edition or Stray Kirby edition. Dude, there is a moment in this lore dump where a um, a talking <laughs> lion literally says, this is the forgotten land. And you understand what happened in that apocalypse and where everyone else <laughs> is. It is so weird. Okay. I God. Now I want to play this. It's game. fun too. I mean, it's classic Kirby. It, I like Kirby. There's I a like lot of Kirby games. The the focus is less on a bunch of new powers than I get these powers and I upgrade them and they become different kinds of powers until they're totally overpowered. Okay. Which I was suspicious Mouthful of at first, mode. and then I thought I got the space gun, and I was like, this is really sick. But yeah, it is worth playing for that ending alone, especially because trying to walk through it again quickly on Wikipedia just to be like, am I processing this correctly? It doesn't hit the same way reading about it. It's absolutely <laughs> nuts. And they even like used like this different horrific font for like one of the main villain characters who talks. It's, it's nuts. Okay. God, I got to play this now. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm excited. Otherwise, no. I mean, I also played, uh, some of the new Hot Wheels DLC for Forza Horizon 5 earlier today, which is like, I think it was part of why I was noticing the game elements of Stray so much because I was playing one of the most gamey video games there is in Forza 5, especially now with Hot Wheels. Oh, okay. I've I've never played, I know you're a huge 14 fan at this point. This is your game, but I had never played a Final Fantasy game before. And I uh, thought it would be funny as a bit to start playing uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake as my first Final Fantasy game. Uh, and instead of it being a bit, I am in love with Jesse and really excited to see where the story goes, even though I know 
certain things that might make me upset. Yeah, Final Fantasy, I had never played the original Final Fantasy VII as a kid, so this was my first experience with it, and I, I loved that game. Like, it's so good, and the characters are just so... I There's this weird knowingness to the way that that game is created, where it feels like they're in on the joke, even though I'm pretty sure they're not at the same time, where... Like the constant sexual tension between the characters, everybody's hot. Every like they constantly make you question whether or not they are fornicating behind closed doors uh, when you're not looking. <laughs> um, it's just this really interesting dynamic that really pulls you into the pulls you into the world. <laughs> yeah, I'm all in. I mean, I I think I was partially inspired, but there was that video in the lead up to the Batman where Robert Pattinson was talking about the difficult decision he faced as a kid between Tifa and Aerith, I think is the other right, one. Right, right, right. Zoe Kravitz yeah. is staring him down. And I was like, I kind of want to know. I didn't have this experience. I want to <laughs> know what it's like. And then I've been so like... I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Although I feel like I only ever hear about recent Final Fantasy games, aside from 14, for how the gameplay is not satisfying the people who like those games. But the kind of rhythm of that game, of switching between the action RPG and then taking your time to send your little commands, it's like everything I wish Mass Effect were and is not. Where I'm just in I this, love the combat of that game. It's so, so good. Much. It's so much fun. I'm seeing the numbers when I go to sleep. I was recently out of town for like a full week and just kept thinking I'm having a good time, but I would like to be back to visit my <laughs> friends and see those numbers pop up and switch into operator mode and see those numbers climb even higher. It's just it's just satisfying. Yeah. Which I mean is that's that's what you want from any of these like kind of turn off your brain RPG type experiences. But um yeah, let's let's get to some questions here. There's there's like a bunch of shit. We don't have to answer all of it right now. Um, let's see. Why are all game to live action movies and TV shows awful? Another person said movie tie-in games were reliably awful, but the practice is basically dead now. What movie could have an actually good tie-in game? Bonus points if it's an Annapurna movie, that would be an, a good Annapurna game. You have to assume a lot of it is why we just don't have as many games from like produced at a certain level because they're so complicated and hard to make. And if you make one of these big blockbuster movie games, I think the expectation, especially in like a post Arkham Asylum, Spider Marvel Spider-Man kind of world, like the expectation is they're produced at that kind of triple A level. But wasn't there, I never played it, but I know um, our old... Um, fellow Northwestern alum, Jordan Minor, was really big into like the mummies, like the Tom Cruise mummies, like kind of Metroidvania style game. And Tom I, Cruise mummy. Yeah. It's there. You don't, the dark universe, bro. You don't know about the dark universe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do, unfortunately. Um, um, <laughs> I, I, I just don't know the Tom Cruise mummy. Yeah, Tom Cruise had a that was the kickoff of the dark universe was this Tom Cruise okay. mummy 2013. I, for some I, think, I remember that film. I do not remember Tom Cruise being the main character in that movie. I never saw it, but Yeah, it's maybe it's 2016. Wow. I think I got it wrong. Um yeah, it's pretty bad. It's right. like really the only blemish on Cruise as of late is I mean, aside from other things, probably, that <laughs> we don't need to talk about. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that I think there was, like, 
like there is potential for smaller versions of those games. I think something like um, another game I've been playing lately, the new TMNT Shredder's Revenge game. I think there's potential for making kind of taking those bigger IP and making smaller scale, like let's nail this one thing, let's make it short and sweet and let's get it out. Um, Space Jam, a new legacy tried to do that. And the game was really bad and free, I think, or maybe it was on game pass. I don't know, but there is potential in taking, I think those bigger IP and making smaller games. As far as like the idea of taking like American independent cinema or art house cinema and turning it into games, um, man, I came up with the pitch. Here's one. All right. This is okay. Remember when they made the walking dead? Uh, telltale games what if you did something like that where it was like the every you know everyday life dramatic kind of interactions slice of life style gameplay i mean that's not what it was in walking dead but there are more games like this now where you're just kind of interacting with people and talking to them and just experiencing like day-to-day life that but everybody wants some get that richard linklater going get a little bit of that like immersion in the 70s thing going on and living that lifestyle and all your friends say uh things you can't say nowadays Mm -hmm. uh, because that's how they were back then Mm -hmm. but it's also just kind of endearing because like you just know that's how they were back then and it's not a big deal yeah a a good hangout game i'm totally in a good hangout game hangout game just glenn powell and the boys like final fantasy 15 it's a good hangout game, by the way. All right. I, if you ever get around how's to How's the gameplay? Not as good as sent Final Fantasy VII, but All right. you're on a road trip with your bros in that game. So oh, I'm down. That's a thing. I mean, the uh, the obvious Annapurna movie would be um, The Grandmaster, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> video games? I don't think there are many video games that take the Wong Kar Wai aesthetic. <laughs> I think that would be sick. No. We were actually talking about this um, in the Bad End Discord, patreon.com slash bad end support if you want access. Um, but we were thinking, why aren't there more games influenced by Wong Kar Wai? Like, what, where, is, where is that thread, you know? Totally. Yeah, I mean, he oh, has we were like, talking about, there's this game called Shifu that yep. came out. Yeah, which is what, yeah. It looked like John Wick when it could have looked like Fallen Angels. Totally. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Or the Grandmaster, which literally <laughs> if there were a game, it would be that. So I want those like blurry like sequences of motion where it's like everything the all the motion is so blurred. The the typical like one car Y like mm-hmm. chunking express thing going on. I want that. Me too. I want to move through those kind of slowed down sequences in Chunking Express specifically. I would love that. Annapurna, you know what to do. You've worked with him in the past. I know you're listening. Also tell him to make another movie, please. Yeah, Mrs. Perna, (laughs) Mr. Perna. Megan Allison. Is there any merit to the recent trend of Hollywood celebrities doing voices slash mocap slash facial scanning for games? Yes, I think so. Sometimes. (laughs) I mean, I certainly that is part of the appeal of Death Stranding is even just like there's something so interesting about the way that game uses celebrity, like taking even like celebrities who we don't see in front of the camera, but someone like Guillermo del Toro and replacing his voice because 
it doesn't line up with the character, but you know he looks like Guillermo del Toro. Um, there's something so fun about the way that game um, brings those celebrities in. Otherwise, I'm blanking right now on more interesting usages. So 12 Minutes did have... Right, the celebrity um, voice cast. James McAvoy. And James McAvoy and... Daisy Ridley. And yeah, Daisy is Ridley. It, is it Willem Dafoe? Yes. But it was not like a good use of them. Like at all. I actually didn't know it was James McAvoy or Daisy Ridley until I like saw the sheet, the the, the cast. But you knew it was Willem the, Dafoe. He's favorite. I knew it was. Yeah. You can't not That's know it's Willem Dafoe. That's the Willem Dafoe promise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I don't really know what it adds, though. This gets more into the conversation of persona, I guess, and how our perception of film is connected to our perception and preconceived notions about like the actors or actresses or what have you, um, which is like why typecasting exists. It's why a lot of these practices in the film industry exist because like you envision Tom Cruise and you, you don't see the character. Like you kind of see Tom Cruise in some of these situations, but in certain games, like where it, that doesn't matter so much. I don't know how much it's really adding, you know? No, totally. I mean, again, that's why, like, even when I was bringing up the usage in Death Stranding, I was more interested in the usage than I was necessarily in the actual impact on the narrative. Like, more interested in what are the implications of Kojima himself being like, this has to be Guillermo del Toro in terms of his look. Um, I guess one thing it brings you um, is a lot more leaked early details about the game because Norman Reedus doesn't understand how game production works. But other than that, I'm <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, it brings you – I mean, what they think it brings you is it brings you an audience, right? And in the case of 12 Minutes, it brought you LA Times pieces and other things like that because these stars are in the game. But in terms of what impact it, it has, I don't know. Another interesting – like side conversation that I could see becoming a dissertation in and of itself is the, the idea of acting for specific media, you know, like we had the transition already between stage, uh, screenplay screenplays and acting on the stage, which is a huge transition. Mm -hmm. Like if you talk about like Scarlett Johansson and how, how people kind of reviewed how she performs on the stage versus like how she performs on film, mm -hmm. massively different reception. And you have films dedicated to the idea, like a Birdman type movie, but it's like, this is extremely different for games too. Like one of the most icon iconic games actors. So thus far is you have Nolan North, you have David Hayter, who was, previously a screen actor but didn't have much success in that realm but is literally one of the most iconic voices in games now and it's like what are the nuances of the difference between acting for games and acting for a film and how do those translate and what how how does it break down when you have actors who are used to acting for film acting in games I think that's a more interesting conversation to have and to see like maybe some of these actors just aren't very good games actors. Mm -hmm. That's a total possibility. Like, I think we just think it's a given that just because they're good actors on screen means that they're good actors in games, but that's not necessarily the case. And I think, uh, digging a little bit deeper into that could be a fun exercise. 
Totally. Yeah. At, at the very least, release the mocap footage of all of these actors doing their stuff. Like they released the footage of George Clooney jumping in the bush for Fantastic Mr. Fox. I want to see it. I want to see that what James really McAvoy fun. looked like in the studio when he was laying down 12 oh, minutes. God, that's probably out there as promotional material somewhere. I'm sure. Okay. And then we got a big ass list of questions. Oh my God. Someone came up with a different question <laughs> for each Oscar. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Jeez. We don't have to go through all these or we can do like a lightning round. Yeah. Let's go down the line. I feel would feel really bad not addressing <laughs> at least half of these. Okay. Real quick. What's the, what's the best picture frame a game character has ever picked up and looked at? <laughs> oh my God. This is best picture. Best picture frame a character has ever looked at. I feel like there's one in um, like Uncharted. That's really yeah, funny. I instantly thought of a Naughty Dog game as well, but it was like generic Naughty Dog game, pick up a picture. Where it's like they're looking at a picture of their family in the past. You know how like they have to Photoshop pictures for film where it's like, oh, we were all younger together in a picture, but none of us existed or knew each other at that time. So they had to Photoshop it and it looks really shitty. Yep. Why does it still look that bad in Uncharted yep. when it's a video game and they're making all these characters from the ground up anyway, you know? Yep. Um, which, which game character? Hey, that's the Naughty is- Dog cinematic touch, you know? Like... That's the fidelity to cinema. Okay, what's what's this next one? These questions. (laughs) Which game character is the best director of energy balls? (laughs) Uh Goku. It has to be. Right? When I think energy balls, I think Goku. Yeah, right away. Which European board game has the best production design? We're out of my uh, oh, really? comfort zone. Is Viticulture a European board game? Because that one's pretty dope. There's also this one that's like, a, I forgot what it's called, Everdell or something like that, where you're like these little, it looks like a Don Bluth Lambie Tour for Time um, slash, what is the Hidden Forest? What's that? There's some movie, Don Bluth movie. He's someone we threaten um, our fans with covering one day. <laughs> Because people only remember some of them, but man, Don Bluth made some movies. Secret of Nim. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Yep. That's Secret what it's of Nim. Yep. Okay. That that game is good. The Everdell one. That's good production design. Which character has the best animated short hop? <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus. Um. <laughs> The cat from Stray looks pretty good when it's like short hopping. It's true. There was like, um, I think it was NBA 2K11 had a broken step back feature where you could get off like a perfect three pointer at any time. And specifically Ty Lawson on the Denver Nuggets was so good (laughs) at it and led to so many confrontations in my dorm room because I was putting up. Unreal numbers. Little did I know James Harden would just make that his game soon. But yeah, it was so broken the next year. I believe they no longer had the triangle step back. And instead you had to do a more complicated maneuver to pull it off. So I'm going Ty Lawson, 2011 Ty Lawson. What's the best original scoreboard chasing game? 
This is this is a stretch. <laughs> I mean that that is that was made for neon white, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Which game has the best visual effects when you smoke a blunt? Oh, hmm. hmm. I mean, Metal Gear Solid has some mm-hmm. nice smoke. Totally, but you're not smoking blunts. No. You're smoking cigars. There's the end of Uncharted too. I don't know if that counts as a blunt, but whatever Nathan Drake was smoking. There's not enough weed smoking in games. It'll come. Annapurna, we are giving you so many ideas right now. I feel like GTA is the only game where I like can think right. of characters smoking yeah, the weed. aliens. Which Five Nights at Freddy's game had the best original screenplay? <laughs> I, I haven't played Five Nights at Freddy's. So I haven't either. I'm going with three. My, uh... <laughs> Me too. What's the best documentary feature to be included in the extras menu of a game? Oh, that's a that's a cool one. Have you played um, Gran Turismo 7? No. Incredible documentaries there. I don't give a shit about cars, but I play a lot of car games, and that game made me care about cars. I was like, you're right. This should require seven separate microtransactions to purchase because this is the coolest <laughs> car anyone has ever made. <laughs> I remember like in Gran Turismo 4 or 5, there was like videos and I was like, I remember watching those and I wouldn't, there's no way I would ever watch a video in a game, much less a game about cars. But I, like they got me to buy a, buy a car video game and B to watch a video about cars in the car video game. Mm -hmm. So hats off to them. That's a great, (laughs) that's a great pool right there. Okay. We're almost done here. What's the best international feature added to a localization? Hmm. That one is, you got to know some localization stuff. The memes in Zelda Link Between Worlds. They added memes. It's not best, but it is certainly the one I can think of off the top of my head. Oh, wait, there was a game recently that I was like, this game is so well localized. Oh, um, Elden Ring. Mm Mm-hmm. Elden Ring was really well localized. I always think of um, the um, very different game than Elden Ring, but the Mario plus Luigi series. Those are fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the rare games that's like, hey, we're funny. And I'm like, oh, you are actually kind of funny. <laughs> Paper Mario. Yeah. Speaking of which. Totally. Also great. Oh, I mean, Origami is King had localized? me in tears. Yeah, that game is hilarious. I don't know if it's, I don't know if that was localized from Japanese, though. Yeah, that's true. I'm not really sure. Um What's the best costume design you've ever seen in a multiplayer games Halloween update? <laughs> <laughs> like they could have taken the easy route, but they didn't, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> Look, I'm still trying out the same like spooky hollows Rocket League car every October. So I like the trick or treat decal. I'm going with that. Got a, has a cute little ghost on it. I think it counts as a costume, even though we're back to cars. There was a Sleepy Hollow Hecarim skin in League of Legends. Mm. That was pretty cool, I think. It's like a jack-o'-lantern thing. Can I give a worse also, one? French made Nidalee, I want to say really quick. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Last year's Rocket League update, which introduced the Joker <laughs> laugh boost. No, thank you. Don't need <laughs> to hear that. Is it... um? Mark Hamill? It's closest to Hamill. I don't know if it actually is Hamill. So, I mean, it's a good Joker laugh, but like <clears throat> you're boosting there. a lot in that game. <laughs> yeah, you're mostly boosting. Okay, two more. Which game has the best makeup and hairstyling menu? 
<laughs> she went back to the simple and I'm like, yeah, that got me. Love Nikki dress up queen. I'll just say that just for the sake of all of our love Nikki fans on the, <laughs> in the discord, which quadruple A character has the best animated feature on their fa- face. <laughs> um, everyone in LA noir. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Shout out Ken Cosgrove. Okay. We have a few more, but I think we can knock these out real quick. All right. How many times will Hollywood take a crack at resident evil? At least five more. Yeah. Nonstop. It'll never end. Have you watched the the new show? No, but it seems I want to. I have questions about who these shows are for. I think it's for anyone who knows the name resident evil and is looking for something to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) someone echoed best animated short hop is just, just (laughs) accentuating that that one um will the last of us hbo be a paradigm shift for how game adaptations are approached if anything i'm i am very interested to see how that one goes because the last of us feels like it was based on prestige tv and now they're making a prestige tv show off of the last of us so if that one doesn't do well something's fucking wrong here guys totally we actually just talked about it very briefly on the show because um sam raimi who was our last miniseries was originally producing a Last of Us movie, not directing as far as I know, but producing. And that was interesting because he is such a goofy filmmaker who would obviously handle the gore in a way, but the tone is totally different from the somber Last of Us style storytelling. So yeah, no, instead we got the Last of Us adaptation that feels like the Last of Us. Will I be watching? Probably not. I will. Just to see it. Let to me see know how it is. Maybe one episode. I'll let you know. Okay. And then final question, final, final, underscore, final. What game is the most NPR core? Mm. I want to say the beginner's guide here. Hmm. That one feels very NPR What is that one? I don't think I know that one. It's an indie game from Davey Reedon who did the Stanley Parable. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Stanley Parable? I it's, just recently played it for the first time. Okay. There you go. So this, the beginner's guide is really interesting in that it's presented as almost like a self-narrated documentary game where he's walking through his own video games that he made. And so you'll play through like the very first level he ever designed. And he's talking to you about like, yeah, so I made this for blah, 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 blah. And he's talking about why he made it and what his inspirations were and how he was feeling and uh, it slowly devolves into something different from that. Mm. So uh, it's it's actually a really interesting mm. game. Goes kind of hand in hand with what I was what we were talking about earlier with the summer games done quick, Ocarina of Time slash found footage horror thing. Um, but it's a good it's a good ass game. I actually really want to replay it mm. I'll because it there's out. never been anything like it before. And living in someone's walkthrough of their own work that is like narrated is an experience you never really have that is just really cool. Also, I think that technically qualifies as second person storytelling because hmm. he's talking like to you, the mm-hmm. listener. Yeah. Right. Isn't that yeah. what that is? All right. This brings anyway. me back to the celebrity acting question and Terry Gross simulator. <laughs> I'd play it. <laughs> I'd play it. JJ. I want to sit down with Bradley Cooper, see what's on his mind. Isn't he a jerk? Is that is that something that I'm just misremembering? I don't know. I've heard I've heard positive things recently. He was recently talking about someone else being a jerk. 
Okay. I'm Someone who was a jerk to him, but <laughs> okay. no, I hope not. He's now dating um, Huma Abedin, so there Good you go. Good for you, Bradley. Mm-hmm. Keep on moving on up, buddy. <laughs> Cooper JJ. 2024. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a long time coming, and uh, sorry Kyle couldn't be here, but uh, JJ, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Yeah, Our audience is cool. Don't worry. You'll be happy to have them follow you. Of course. You can find me on Twitter at JJ.biz. Um, Spelled out. J-J-D-O-T-B-I-Z. Um, yes. <laughs> I got to change that at some point, but probably not. <laughs> um, and uh, you can hear my name um, usually a couple times in each episode, but almost always at the end of the episode when they thank me. Um, of episodes of Blank Check with Griffin and David, where we are covering the films of Bob Fosse. All that jazz. If you like this week. This, is this coming out this week or next week? Musicals. This week. This week? Okay. All that jazz with a guest who he's our most famous ever. His name is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, okay. Yep. Wow. Big week. Big week for Blank Check. Yep. We went. We okay. tried hard on the Fosse series. We had Colin Quinn last week. <laughs> Damn. We had Rachel Zegler from West Side Story two weeks ago. The guests on Blank Check are consistently like nuts. Where I'm like, how did you get that? How did you guys get that? When we're done recording, I'm going to tell you something. Okay. All right. I'm excited. And if Um, David is listening to this, it's not the thing you think. It's the thing he thinks. (laughs) Okay. Um, JJ, thanks again for coming on the show. We are Bad End Podcast. Uh, For those listening, thanks so much for getting to the end. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Bad End Podcast. Also, if you are following our YouTube channel, uh, you will notice that things have changed around there. It is no longer the Bad End YouTube channel. It is now the Superculture YouTube channel, uh, which is like our sort of parent organization where we that we share with a few other awesome games publications. Essentially, we want it, it to be a place that can host a wider variety of content than just like bad end specific stuff. So that's what we're doing now. We just put up a new video essay on Resident Evil 2 and gun design. We got another one in the pipeline, like literally the edit's done. So it'll probably be up in the next like probably week or two. I don't want to like be publishing these things too quickly because I got to like give myself time to make the next one. But yeah, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's like the big one for this week. If you are not already, go on the YouTube just look up Superculture and you'll find us there. But anyway, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Later. Thank you.